Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Patrick Bowerman. If you don't know me, I uh, have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors at River Oaks, uh, primarily deal with students, um, also an elder here, and I'm very, very thankful. Two things. One, that I get to preach today, but, but that we're gathered together to worship our King. Um, and so let me encourage you, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be uh, in verses 1 through 17 this morning. Now, if you've been with us, uh, you know, for any amount of time the past few months, we've been uh, walking through the book of Acts. Uh, we've been, been hearing just what God's been doing. And this morning, we find that, that Paul is, is going to come to the city of Corinth. Paul has been traveling throughout the Greek countryside. He's been seeing, you know, temples and, 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 and statues and all of these things that are devoted to these false pagan idols. And in his heart, he is provoked as he sees the, the false worship all around him. He's provoked to desire to, to bring the truth to these people. He sees that they're, they're caught up in these, uh, you know, their, their passions here. If you were to describe these people, if you were to say that they were occupied with something, you would say that the people of the countryside are occupied with false worship, superstition, greed, lust, and any host of other things that aren't pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul finds himself in this ancient city, a city so rife with prostitution and sexual sin that the word Corinthian itself has, has become an adjective for all sorts of just moral perversion. It's no wonder that a confrontation takes place here. But what we see very clearly in our passage, what we see uh, just plainly, is that this, in this confrontation that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of this city. Though there might be a thousand hilltops that proclaim any number of false deities, there's only one God who is true. No one can stop him from, from rescuing the lost, and no one can stop him from establishing his churches. No opposition can keep him from both saving Jew and Greek, or from being with his followers, or from protecting his own. No one can stop him from doing that. Because he is the Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so because of that, brothers and sisters, our main idea from the text this morning is we, we can continue to persuade and proclaim Jesus to others without giving in to fear, because Jesus is with us. You know, we can continue and persevere in sharing and being faithful and making disciples without giving in to fear because we have the Lord with us. And so as we walk through our passage this morning, there's a very simple outline as we look at it. Verses 1 through 8, we hear that, that Paul is occupied with the Word of God. He's occupied with the Word. And we see in verses 9 through 11 that Jesus strengthens Paul for the work. He's strengthened for the work that God has for him. And in verses 12 through 17, that we see that Paul is protected from the wrath of those who would oppose him, those who are united against him. The Lord protects him from their wrath. And so as we begin to look at our text this morning, would you just pray with me and ask the Lord to lead our time? So Father, thank you. Thank you that we're gathered together to hear your word. Lord, would you, would you empower us and strengthen us through your spirit to trust you, to know that you are with us. 
Lord, that as we walk in you, Lord, we can not give in to fear, but we can, we can rest confidently in who you are and what you have called us to do. Father, Lord, give us confidence to speak. Lord, help us to, to be a people who love our neighbors, who desire to share the hope of Christ with them. Would you lead us in every way to be faithful? And would you strengthen us where we're weak? Would you give us confidence to see you more clearly? Thank you, Lord. Lead us by your word. Encourage us in its truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a manner of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. It says we begin looking in verses 1 through 8. We see that that Paul is occupied with the word. Last week, we heard about Paul being in and among the, the, the people who were the philosophers of the city of Athens. This week, we see that Paul is among the dock workers in Corinth. Here's a couple of things you need to know about the city of Corinth. It was a major city of this area. It was the, the capital of the province of Achaia. Um, and where Athens had something like 10,000 people, maybe 20,000, Corinth has up to 750,000 people living in the city. It's massive, and, and it's, a, it's a hub of, of trade and commerce. Um, it's, it's located in such a way that it's very easy to get um, supplies from one sea to the other because they're able to, to go across a land bridge that goes right through the city. 
And so it's a hub of, of action. There's lots of people there. There's lots of immorality, as I mentioned before, going on in the city. But we see and we think about this. Corinth is a melting pot of, of all sorts of peoples and ideas. And so this would be an ideal place for a church to be planted that could impact the whole region. You know, this is a, a central spot where Paul can invest in people and see a maximum impact as they go back to their homelands and they take the gospel with them. But one of the amazing things about our country is that it's a melting pot as well. Frankly, we live in the, devo- the most diverse nation in the world. And so let us think strategically as well to see the opportunities that God has around us to be able to have a lasting impact that's not just here, but that would spread out to the four corners of the earth. And so this is where Paul finds himself this morning, in Corinth. And as he arrives in Corinth in verses 2 through 3, we hear that Paul uh, meets up with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who themselves had just recently arrived in Corinth. They had fled from Italy and the persecution uh, that was taking place there. And they were tent makers, just like Paul. So Paul had a, a commonality with them, so he ends up staying with them and working alongside them for a season. Now, in Acts, we don't hear about Aquila and Priscilla's uh, conversion, but most likely they're already believers in Christ at this point. And they end up being great partners in the gospel. And we'll be hearing more about that next week as they go to Ephesus. And so, you know, we'll be hearing just about that influence, this lasting impact that Aquila and Priscilla have. But one thing we notice is that while Paul is here at this time, he's a tent maker, you know, during the week. But on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. He desires to reason and persuade the Jews to hear about Jesus. He's desiring to testify about who Jesus is, their long-awaited Messiah. And it's during this time that Silas and Timothy come to Paul in Corinth. And they're bringing word from the churches in Macedonia when they come. So if you remember, Paul had to flee from Thessalonica and, and some of the churches in Macedonia. And so he's bound to be thinking like, how are those churches doing? Are they surviving? You know, have they, have they been persecuted and killed the people there? Are they clinging to the faith? Are they running back to idols? What's, what's going on with them? He's longing to hear about these people that he loves. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, we hear the report from Timothy and Silas. Timothy tells Paul of the good news that the Thessalonians have continued in the faith and they've remembered Paul kindly and they long to see him. They love this dear brother. So they are, they are continuing in their faith. And you can imagine as Paul has gone to this city, a darker city as it were, you know, a difficult place, he's greatly encouraged to hear that his brothers and sisters are, are remaining steadfast in the Lord. But not only do Paul and, or Timothy and Silas bring word of those churches, but they also bring funds that were given by those Macedonian churches for the sake of Paul's ministry here in Corinth. We hear in 2 Corinthians eleven nine 9, that the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And so Paul was able to, to focus his efforts after this offering was given. He no longer had to, to work during the week as a tent maker, but he was able to focus solely on making disciples and raising up the church and equipping the saints in the city. 
I think this is a great encouragement and a reminder for us as well of the importance of, of those, you know, the, the different gifts that you give to missionaries in, in different organizations around the world, whether it's people like, you know, Ben Bachelor, people that serve world orphans, or any other number of organizations and missionaries that you support. The giving that you give matters, and it makes it possible for them to do this kind of work, a work that we will celebrate forever. So let me encourage you to continue to give in those ways. But in verse 5, we hear that Timothy and Silas find Paul occupied with the word. This is such a a cool description of of doing ministry. It means that he's going about doing the work of the Lord, bringing the word of God to the people. You know, he's focused on preaching in the synagogues and, and to his Jewish brothers uh, in this area, and the Greek ones as well. But you got to ask a question. Why is it that Paul keeps going into the synagogues, these places where they want to kill him? Why is it that Paul keeps going back into danger when you know, they're trying to pursue him and imprison him, trying to kill him? Paul in his own body has the, the scars and the marks where the, the stones were hurled on him and they thought they killed him. He bears those pains from where the rods struck him. And yet, he continues time after time to go back into the city, to the synagogues, to the Jews. Why would he do this? Why risk their potential anger again? Why be willing to suffer another blow or another heartache? We hear Paul's heart in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23, where he says this. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He's willing to do whatever it takes to rescue some by calling them to place their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. He's willing to endure hardship. He's willing to put his life at risk for their sake so that they would be rescued. I heard an amazing story this week, I think it was on Friday, of a group of retired American soldiers who did this very thing, who desired to put their lives on the line. They paid their way to go to Kabul and to, to, to place themselves in a position where they could go and and intervene. Why would they do that? Why would they desire to do that? Why would they they take this this cost and the danger? It's because there's people that needed to be rescued. And so we hear this story that these people, they went in and they coordinated with our active military. And they they went to people that they knew that were translators and and former allies. And they, they they would shepherd them literally from checkpoint to checkpoint. Two and three people at a time in darkness, you know, in danger, trying to shepherd them so they would get them to the airport so they could get out. And by last report, there were over 600 people that were rescued by by these efforts. It's incredible. You know, these soldiers essentially said, we've got to do something. And if the Taliban are going to get our friends, the people that served alongside us, they're going to have to get them over our dead bodies. Such was their desire to to lay down their comforts for the sake of others. 
And as we, as we think about the importance of us sharing the gospel, being willing to, to go and rescue those that are lost, Charles Spurgeon puts it eloquently this way. He says, If sinners be damned, at least, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Paul here is willing to lay down you know, his comforts for the sake of rescuing others. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that would be an encouragement to us as well to seek out those that are lost and hurting so that they too would be rescued. You see, sharing the gospel as we see throughout the book of Acts is a call for all of us to take up. It's something we, th- we should think hard about. What does it look like for us to be occupied with the word? Kids, as you're in here th- today, I, I want to encourage you that you have a job in this as well. You have a role to play in, in being occupied with the word and in taking the, law, the, the word of God to, to those that need it. So what does it look like for us to be occupied with the word? Well, it looks like us teaching and shepherding. It looks like us making disciples and and persuading and testifying. It looks like us praying for others. But but we do this this over coffee and at at the lunch table. We do this on our porches and, and over our fences. We do this at our cubicles, on the ball fields, over FaceTime, through Instagram. You know, even if we're having, you know, a board game night, there's opportunities for us to share about Jesus and encourage those that are lost to look to Christ, to place their hope in him or to encourage a a dear believer and strengthen them there. We do it because we love people and we trust that Jesus can rescue them as he's rescued us. We point them to the only hope of salvation, Jesus. And it's he who empowers us and equips us and makes our work effective. He claims people in our city and he claims people in every city and Jesus will not fail at rescuing them. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you all the more. I'm so thankful for the, for the reality that so many people in our church by this definition are occupied with the word of God where you regularly share Jesus and you regularly point others to the hope that is found in Christ. You sacrifice time to to help raise up and and disciple others to grow in their faith. You love in word and, and deed. And you love people both inside the church and outside of the church. So I want to encourage you and exhort you to continue doing that good work. For it has meaning and value and it lasts forever. And so Paul here is preaching regularly to these Jews in the synagogues. He's, he's ministering to them. He's trying to rescue them until they turn hostile against him and they hurl abusive language at him. So Paul, having sufficiently told them the truth and warning them of the cost of rejecting Jesus, it says he shakes out his garments and he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, for now I'm going to the Gentiles. 
And as you hear those words of Paul, I don't want you to think about him saying this in like a hateful way or a way that he's saying like, you know, he's not trying to stick it to them. This is heartbreaking for Paul. He loves these people and he desires to see them come to Christ. And yet he needs to move. It grieves Paul. We hear this in Romans 9, 2 through 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says he would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant that all of his brothers and sisters, these, these Jews, would come to faith. He, he longs to see that happen. Nevertheless, he knows that it's God's mission to send him to the Gentiles. And so, so where does Paul go from here? We hear in verse 7 that he goes to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, and he sets this up as his like, major base of operations in the city. But did you notice where Titius' house was? It's right next door to the synagogue. So he says, in essence, yeah, I'm going out from you, but I'm going to be right next door. You know where to find me. If you want to hear more, I'm right over here. And glory be to God, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, along with his family, take him up on that offer. And they go next door to Titius' house, and they hear, and they believe. And they trust in Christ, along with other Corinthians. And they're baptized in faith in Christ. You know, Paul is strategically thinking about what does it look like for these next steps in ministry? Well, it's to set up here at Titius's house. He's being strategic about how he shares and, and what his goals are. And as we look at this passage, I think it helps us to, to encourage us to know that there's some strategic ways that we can think about sharing the gospel as well, especially as we look really the whole sections one through eight, but particularly in verses four through eight. There's three direct examples from our text in ways to think about as we minister to our friends and neighbors, and as we're trying to disciple people, what does this look like and, and how should we think about continuing? So a couple of things that we see. First is this. We keep sharing the good news of people as long as they're willing to listen. So if they're receptive to the word, if they're you know, engaging with you, talking with you, wanting to hear more, you continue to engage with them. You continue to share. You continue to invest time and energy in them. But at some point, if they are resistant to you, then, then you leave. But the second thing we see is this. When Paul leaves, the door is still open for them to come back to him. So you may focus on other efforts, but if they come back to you, then you continue to minister to them if they desire to hear more, just like Crispus did. And the last thing that we see here is there are others who are eager to hear and be discipled. And so we should look for them. We should pursue them. We should pray for them. There are opportunities for us to make disciples, not just in the synagogues, but everywhere we are, frankly. You know, as we think about Paul spending time with Aquila and Priscilla, I bet they're not just making tents, but they're talking about the Lord. They're, they're sharing conversations. They're exhorting, encouraging each other, praying for one another as they're working. And there's so many opportunities for us to do that as well. You know, where you find yourself located, there are people who need the hope of Christ. Or there are people who need to be discipled, invested in, ministered to, that we can come alongside. As we strategically use our time and our energy to do it to the best of our ability. 
And so as we see from this first section, we continue to persuade others and proclaim Jesus without giving in to fear. Why? Because Jesus is with us. He's empowering us. He's helping us. So we don't need to give in to fear because we have the Lord on our side directing our steps. And so we, we can be occupied with the word as he enables us and equips us to do that. But the second thing we see in our section as we look at verses 9 through 11 is that Paul is strengthened for the work that God has for him by Jesus. So look with me at these verses, starting in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. As Paul is doing the work of the Lord in Corinth, Jesus speaks to him in a vision. And as a result, Paul is strengthened for the work that God has for him to do. You know, if there's any doubt who's actually leading this mission to the Corinthian church, who's really in charge, this vision makes it clear. It is Jesus who both commands and promises, and is directing the rescue of those people in Corinth. And so Jesus' first words to Paul here are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be fearful, Paul. I'm really thankful for for words like these in the Bible, for verses just like this. Because it helps us and reminds us that the disciples and the apostles those, those faithful saints in the Bible, they're real people too. You know, not supermen. They're, they're people like us who face real struggles and, and have hardships and, and struggle with fear. Paul needed to be encouraged here not to be fearful. I think he needed to be comforted after the Jews rejected him because it's heartbreaking to him that that happened. And you got to think, you know, as Paul is strategically setting up his ministry next to the synagogue, he's probably also thinking, yeah, they know where I'm at, but they know where I'm at if they want to come get me. And how are they going to respond now that Christmas has come over? Right? Some of those thoughts begin to play out a little bit, you know. When's the next beating coming down the line? You know, are they going to try to whip us or imprison us? You know, is, is doubt creeping into Paul's mind as he's here? But as Jesus commands Paul not to be fearful, he also commands him to go unspeaking and not to be silent. You see, all three of these commands rest on the promises that Jesus makes in verse 10. Jesus isn't just giving these commands in isolation. He's saying we're able to resist fear and we're able to keep on speaking because Jesus is the sovereign Lord over everything. In particular, Jesus reminds Paul that he is the sovereign Lord in Corinth. And frankly, he's the sovereign Lord in Maryville today as well. You see, Jesus does as he pleases. He'll save whom he wants. He will use who he wants to bring that message, and nothing can stop his servants from being effective. And this is where, this is where Jesus' encouragement to Paul connects with us. You see, it can be easy for us to be fearful when we know our own weaknesses or when we feel isolated 
or when we don't know what's about to come. Frankly, it's easy to be fearful if that's all three of us, all three of those describe us. We're weak, we're isolated, we don't know what's going to come. But you see, Jesus reminds us that he is with us. You know, this isn't like some motivational cat poster that you find hanging on somebody's cubicle. You know, some trite little saying trying to get you to muster up that .001% more of hang in there, pal. It's not like that at all. Instead, the sovereign Lord of all things promises to be with us. Jesus, the one who made the earth and everything in it, the one who sustains all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who is seated on the throne. Jesus is the one who says, before Abraham was, I am. He's the one with all power and all glory and all dominion, both now and forevermore. And his is the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus is with us. And that's true. Don't let that just wash over you. That is true. How does this truth comfort you when you fear doubt, when you have doubt and and fear creep in? You see, the encouragement is not for you to hang in there by your own power as if you could even do that. You can't. But the promise is that for those who trust in Jesus, we are united to him both now and forever. That he indwells us by his spirit to, to speak and to live, and to be faithful. He empowers us through the Spirit to do that. And even as he calls us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, what does he say right after that? What does he say? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul rightly exhorts us in Romans 8, 31. If our God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. Nothing. Nothing can compare to him being with us. So this promise for him to be with us strengthens us when we're fearful. It it breaks the power of, of fear. But Jesus' further promise at the end of chapter, uh, of verse 10, fuels our desire to keep on speaking. For he guarantees that he has many people in this city who are his. You know, and so just like we asked the question, you know, why is it that, 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 that Jesus would be encouraging Paul to not be fearful? It's probably because he's fearful. Why is it that he's commanding him to speak and not be silent? There must be some sort of temptation for him to, to be silent. It's been hard. You may feel tired. The, uh, the opposition is, is tough. You know, whatever's going on, Jesus encourages him, do not be silent. He's encouraging him to bold obedience in the face of fear. But what, is, what does that look like? What does bold obedience in the face of fear look like here? You know, it might, it might look like this. 
You know, continuing to teach and make disciples, even as some are pushing back against our message, that might be what bold obedience looks like for us in our faith, you know, where we're talking and standing up strong because we know that Jesus is with us, because we know that he's mighty. But also from this passage, we see that bold obedience looks like remaining to minister where you are. Though things are really hard around you. It looks like continuing in the same direction for a long period of time. Right? It's not just being bold in speaking, but it's also persevering. This type of obedience can be harder because it, it forces you to, to live amongst those who continue to disagree with you. But you know what? Light is needed where there's darkness. We need Christians who will continue to to work and advocate for truth in places like progressive companies. We need Christians on school boards and in school councils. We need Christians who will be restaurant managers and, and school teachers who would teach faithfully and be a witness in these places. God might be calling you to remain in a job where the environment is tough so that you can be salty and I don't mean just use salty language, right? Like, you're not just being a jerk, but, but be salty in the sense that you bring the aroma of Christ to the people around you. You're preserving and helping them to see and savor and taste the goodness of Jesus. That might be why he has you where you are. He might be calling you to persevere in relationships. As long as they're willing to listen, though you're regularly frustrated by their choices, in hopes that they would hear the gospel and believe and be transformed. I bet Paul was frustrated as he left the synagogue, and then I think he was also greatly encouraged when Christmas came, right? Like he continued to minister, and God saved him. We're to be occupied with the word of God by sharing and, and persuading others because it's through this message that sinners are rescued. You know, it's this very message that made your dead hearts come to life. And you've experienced this new life, a new heart. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater power in the world than the power of God to raise dead sinners to life through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no greater joy, or at least this is one of the maximum joys, there's no greater joy than to be given the privilege of sharing Christ with one who then believes. They hear as you proclaim and they trust in Christ. How joyful is that moment and that day and that walking alongside them. So the command is to not be silent. To be, like, to be silent would be like being provoked by idolatry and then saying nothing. To be silent would be like to, to see people in danger and then you don't do anything. You don't even say a word of caution. Of this we can be sure. Jesus will rescue the lost. And there is not one sheep that will be lost from his hands. But he has called us to be his witnesses and to share the gospel faithfully as the means by which he does that work. When Jesus' witnesses speak, Jesus saves. So brothers and sisters, speak and he will save 
How confident should we be in the word of God proclaimed as we bring it to bear in people's lives? How confident should we be that God will do what he desires to do? Look at Isaiah 55, verse 11. As God is describing his own word, he says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so confidently, brothers and sisters, we can proclaim God's word knowing that it will not return empty, but it will accomplish exactly what God desires for it to accomplish. And because God will accomplish what he wants through his word as we proclaim it, the only way in which we can fail is if we do not speak about Jesus. In this context, this is what failure looks like, to be silent. That's the only way we can fail. And as we look at the promises in verse 10, we recognize two of them are reiterated for all believers. The promise of Jesus being with us and the reality that he will save people in different cities, right? That's reiterated in different places in different ways. But one of these promises is for Paul in this moment. Specifically the promise that Paul will not be attacked and that he won't be harmed by anyone in this city. This isn't one that we should claim for ourselves. But Paul himself later you know, experienced further persecution and attacks and harm too. So we recognize that it was meant for Paul in that moment while he was ministering there, but it was for that time only. But the other two promises remain. He's with us and he has people in this city. And so as we hear that Paul trusted the Lord, we see that he remained in Corinth for 18 more months, teaching the word of God among them. You know, so, so Paul believed Jesus and Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. And this little church in this giant, pagan, dark, wicked city grew. As the word was proclaimed, Jesus saved and rescued people for himself. And as we turn our attention to verses 12 through 17, as we've heard Paul is occupied with the word and he's strengthened for the work, we also see that he's protected from the wrath of those that would desire to hurt him. Look with me in verses 12 through 17. We hear this. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a manner of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. And so in verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus' promises coming to fruition. When Gallio becomes the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews unite together and actually do attack Paul by bringing him before this, this Roman leader of the province. And what's cool in our text is we hear that Luke calls him, uh, you know, the proconsul. Luke gets the details right here. Like there's, there's some tricky names and titles for different leaders depending on what kind of city and what kind of Roman governorship there is. He gets it exactly right. And so we can have greater confidence, you know, from this example and, and lots of other examples that Paul is a historian of, of great 
um, detail and, and accuracy. And so it helps us to trust what he says. And so here we recognize that, that Paul, it helps date, his, date the time here, uh, Paul is, is in Corinth, he's before Gallio, around 51 or 52 A.D., and so Paul is brought before the tribunal to a place called the Bema Seat. I actually have a picture of it for you to take a look at. This is the actual place in Corinth where Paul stood before Gallio. The, the, the Bema Seat, this judgment seat, is, it was up on top of that platform, to the best of my understanding. And, and so like, this would have been right in front of the proconsul's house, right in the kind of marketplace where this judgment was taking place. And here we, we hear again that the Jews accuse Paul of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Even though there's, you know, this, there's this united attack against him, something really unexpected happens. God delivers Paul, not through Paul's eloquence of speech, but he actually delivers him by the hand of a pagan Roman leader. Luke tells us that Paul was getting ready to speak. He was ready to give a defense. But he, but he doesn't get the opportunity because, because Gallio speaks for him. He says that these charges don't interest him because Paul has done no wrongdoing and he hasn't committed a vicious crime. And he refuses to make judgments on this religious argument because it falls outside of his scope of office. And so there's something here, though, I, I want you not to miss. You see, Jesus uses a Roman ruler, a man who's not a Christian, as the means to protect Paul from harm. And because of Gallio's decision, where he refuses to rule on these matters, since it's a question of Jewish law and not Roman law, he sets a precedent in Corinth that Paul is freely able to minister without the fear of, of being going against the Roman authorities. And so Gallio's refusal to hear these false charges or take them seriously has meant that the Christians couldn't be said to be breaking the law by preaching their faith here. Think about this. He's like, Gallio's ruling has allowed them to continue to share the gospel freely all throughout Corinth. And so God worked through this, this person, this man that he had in the city to actually allow the gospel to continue to spread out. And as we see in verse 17, it's, it's a bit unclear why Sosthenes, who is the new ruler of the synagogue, was beaten. It doesn't really say exactly why. And we're not sure who did the beating on him. Was it the Jews or was it someone else? But what we see very clearly is how dangerous the situation for Paul actually was. Paul very easily could have found himself in Sosthenes' place. And yet God delivered him and protected him and did not let him get injured just like he said he would. And what is clear, as you see in verse 18, which is the very next verse, because of Gallio's ruling, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth, ministering before he goes to Syria. There was an open door to continue ministering because of this. And so here's the thing. Jesus promised to be with Paul, and he is. He promises to protect Paul, and he does exactly that. And Jesus says that he has people in this city that are his, and he does. But I think by that he actually means two different things. He has, he has people in the city in both senses, one in which Jesus is continuing to save people in Corinth by this ministry of the church. He has people that are coming to faith in him and trusting, him and trusting in him in this city. But Jesus is also able to use people in the city who aren't Christians 
to accomplish his plans and purposes. He has them that way as well. All of his promises prove true. And they empower and strengthen Paul not to be fearful. Even though there's opposition, he continues to persuade and preach and teach and to not be silent, to speak boldly because Jesus is with him. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not be fearful. Or even if you are fearful, let us look to Christ Jesus. Let us look to him with great expectation as he is working. Let us trust him to be with us at all times, whether those times seem good or bad. And let us rejoice to know that he has people in this city who are his. He says they're already his. So as we look around our schools, as we walk around our neighborhoods, as we go to our workplaces, as we spend time on our sports teams, as we go to the marketplace, we can confidently say some of these people are the Lord's. Jesus has more people in this city that are his. He has more people in our nation who are his. And he has more people around the globe who are his. And so let us, let us continue to persuade. Let us continue to proclaim Jesus. In the face of fear, let us not give in to it, even if we're opposed, because Jesus, our Lord, the Savior, is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for the comfort that you are with us. Pray that you would encourage us now to speak, to sing, to lift our voices to you, our King, to proclaim what we actually believe to be true as we sing about you. And that would serve as a testimony, Lord, an incense that is pleasing, a pleasing aroma to you as we proclaim our faith in Christ, our King, and as we long and wait for your return. Please, Lord, work and encourage us. Pray that you would uh, have many great things to do in River Oaks and through River Oaks, God. Lead us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.